as we prayerfully receive, believe, and respond to God's Word. Um, I invite you, if you looked in your bulletin, you might not be exactly sure um, what's going to happen, but you might know something will be different today. Um, I invite you simply to have your Bible open to the first page, Genesis chapter 1, and the last page, Revelation 22. It takes roughly 72 hours to read all of Scripture out loud, and we're not going to do that today. But as we gather looking at the first book and the last book, the beginning of the Old Testament, the end of the New Testament... We're going to ask, what all is here? And today also, maybe a little bit differently than what we're used to, we're also going to be asking, how did we get this? How did we get this? These 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament making 66 books of the Bible for us. But before we do so, this is God's word. And so just as we've taken a prompt from children in worship, let's pray for God's blessing upon the word. Let's pray together. God, the words are trustworthy and true, that we come to receive your word, whether it be with our ears or our eyes, we come to receive your truth for us. We pray just as the hymn reminded us that you may plant it deep within us, that it may change us, change us, that it may transform us, and that through your word we might be equipped to live as your faithful disciples here on the earth. So, Lord, we pray your blessing upon the word by the power of your Holy Spirit. From Genesis to Revelation, from the first Bible story that we ever heard to the last words of Scripture that we ever receive on this side of heaven. This we offer in your name, O Lord. Amen. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And flipping a few pages to Revelation 22. Revelation 22, verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. So what happened in between? A simple answer would be a lot A theologically appropriate response would be, Jesus, lots happened. History over several centuries happened. Tribes and nations rose up and fell down. People came together. They they wrote prayers. They wrote songs. They wrote hymns together. They were good poets. Things were written. Things were lost. Wars were fought, both won and lost Genesis to Revelation starts with creation of God, who at Genesis 1-1, if we're reading front to back, we don't know much about that God yet. God created the heavens and the earth. And then by the end, there's a specific name by which we know who God is, and that that God is one who seeks to have grace for God's people. Amen. From Genesis to Revelation... A lot happens. 
Here at North Holland this fall, we're going to continue to explore this, these intersections of identity and scripture and mission, asking, who are we? How do we know who we are? And what does that mean for us? But foundationally, an assumption is that every single week we come here and there is a sermon from God's Word. There are prayers and liturgy crafted from God's Word, from Scripture. Which means that we do come with some presuppositions and assumptions. For one, that the Bible has authority. There's all kinds of different ways to parse out what that means and what it looks like. But at the core level, Scripture has authority. The way the Reformed Church in America quantifies that authority, or qualifies it, sorry, qualifies it is Scripture is the only rule for faith and life. Meaning your faith is established and regulated, learned and grown through what is here with God's help in community. Just as we don't celebrate communion alone, we read the Bible together. But Scripture is where we're gaining this understanding of who God is, what has God been up to throughout the centuries. And from Genesis to Revelation, a lot of stuff happened. Some things changed, some things stayed the same, but a lot happened. And in fact, maybe it's worth considering today that more happened from Genesis to Revelation than even what the Bible records And I don't say this in a way that diminishes Scripture, but actually, uh, presupposition of mine, I care about the Bible a lot. And today's sermon might seem like we look at some of the ways that it's like, well, you just showed me how we took the rabbit out of the hat. But there is no rabbit to be taken out of the hat. But as we think about where Scripture came from, how we got it, what happened, who wrote things down, how do we decide what got to stay in and what got taken out, there's a deeper appreciation that we grow into. And a careful reading will let us know that even those who put, well, not pen to paper, but probably quill to scroll, knew that there was more going on even when what they would record and pass along. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 41. Well, read this with me if you can see the words well enough. As for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed... Are they not written in the book of the annals of Solomon? Scripture fully admits that there is even more that happened. So Solomon, important figure in the Old Testament. We went from King Saul to King David to King Solomon. Solomon was wise. He was wealthy. Israel prospered under his reign. And also they were getting set up for falling away. But of all the great things that happened, it's just simply written, you know what? the author of Scripture had an assumption that we all know more than what we do. We don't have the book that's referenced here. We simply don't. But what was being written was passed down of first importance of all this other stuff that happened, but this is what I want you to pay attention to. That same phrase that, well, aren't they not written down in this book or that book? It is repeated 40 times through Kings and Chronicles. Essentially, after the conclusion of Kings and Chronicles talking about the reign of this king or that king, we're told, you know what, and there's other stuff they did, and that's written down in those other books. At the time this was written, they assumed we had those books. Today we don't. We think about Solomon and some of the things that we readily say about Scripture, that that Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. 
And yet when we carefully read Scripture, we're reminded that Proverbs chapter 30 is the sayings of Agur. Proverbs 31 is the sayings of King Lemuel. I don't know a lot more about Agur and Lemuel. And I'm sure that Solomon knew all of the best wisdom of the day, that he wanted to collect this. This was part of his mission and part of what God gave him wisdom to do. But not all of it was original to him, but that doesn't mean it diminishes its importance. But when we read Scripture well, we might catch some of the things that we say are not totally and always fully without error true. We talk about the Psalms as being written by David, and a lot of them are ascribed to David. But if you look in your Bible, you'll see that Psalm 72 is ascribed to Solomon. Psalms 73 through 83 were ascribed to Asaph. Following that, several are accredited to Korah, and then even Moses is attributed to Psalms. Psalm 90 is written as the prayer of Moses. Now, Psalm 90 gives us a little bit of a clue into how the rest of Scripture came to be. The Psalm of Moses predates all of the other Psalms. Moses lived a long time before David, before Korah, before Asaph. Moses lived before all them. And yet here is this Psalm attributed to Moses, which means this is probably Moses' prayer. But it wasn't written down. They didn't print it in the synagogue bulletin that week. And no one, you know, some pack rat put it in a filing cabinet and pulled it out a few centuries later. That's not how things worked. Paper was expensive, hard to come by. This prayer of Moses would have been taught in song, in verse, in rhyme, as a prayer, as a song, and it would have been held on to. And when all the psalms were being written... And when decisions were made on what psalms to to keep, and there's lots of other good songs that didn't become psalms, Psalm 90, Moses, would have been one of the ones that was taken from oral tradition of us memorizing and singing it together and sharing it and passing it along. Well, you know, we better write that one down. Much of the Old Testament was passed around for a long time through oral tradition before it was written, before it was recorded. Now, as we talk about these things, maybe this seems irrelevant. Maybe it gets you and, you're, and it's raising more questions for you. And maybe you're just wondering, okay, uh, uh, where is this all going? If there's a common thread of both how the Old Testament from oral tradition to being written and the New Testament being collected in all kinds of ways, we'll get there. The common thread would be this. All of these books are a gift Every single one of them. And they are a gift, and they are a gift to us from people that lived long before any of us. And someone thought enough of them to write them down. There's things, there's probably family stories that you tell. Or maybe stories that your grandparents tell you. And eventually, if those aren't written down, they might be lost and forgotten. Even Ecclesiastes says, And the future things will not be known by the past generation. And the past generations and future generations will not remember the deeds of the past. Someone cared enough about everything that is written in our Bible to write it down. And then, this is grammatically problematic, but I'm going to run with it. Some more someones kept them. That what we have made the cut 
And this is throughout the centuries to get us 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 of the New Testament. People cared and thought that this mattered enough that we have to hold on to it. We have to protect this word. We have to make sure that it's available. It is a gift to us that might be so easy to take for granted when we can go to a bookstore or download an app and have all of the Bible right in front of us and lose the sight of that there were centuries and several different authors that collected all of these different pieces. And now we have them here today. Easy to take for granted, the complexity. Now, because I'm pretty boring with my slides and I do a lot of just text and wording, I do have at least one helpful picture today. Anybody can tell me what those are? Coins? Yep, just little circles. Um, When we were at Camp Warwick um, for Mission Action this past summer, I got to go on Sunday um, and spend some time with my Uncle Jim and Aunt Janice, uh, who live in Brunswick. And one of the things we did is a little field trip to the east for me. We went to Princeton. And these coins were on display in the Princeton Art Museum. And I took a picture of them because they're Greek coins. And I love Greek culture. Not like the sorority fraternity kind, but like, you know, Koine Greek. Like, you know, scholarship and philosophers. And coins. These coins are pretty easy to figure out about where they came from. Because they bear the face and the image of a ruler at that time, or a word or a phrase, or a stamp that indicates during this time and date, during this person's reign, this was currency. We might take for granted the United States that we have like pretty set currency. It doesn't change every single time um, because otherwise, eventually, your, your George Bush bills would be outdated, um, your Obama bills and your Trump bills All of these different things would change in the ancient Near East and throughout many societies. Whenever there was a new ruler, their face or their logo, essentially, was what was on the coin. Coins are old. Some of these were written at the same approximate time, um, well, let's just say 500 years before Jesus. Uh, Some of them spread as far down as being found in Egypt. Um, Others... Were, were collected even as far away as India. These are old coins. And they're really quite well preserved. Now, you can't touch them. They're in a glass, and I think there is some security nearby. Um, but coins are pretty easy to preserve. Paper is a lot harder to preserve than coins. We don't have as many things written down preserved as we can have of coins that are preserved. Consider how this could work even in your own house. We won't do a show of hands for who here is a pack rat, but I'll just confess that I am. And some spouses are looking at the other spouse right now too, and that's very telling. You might have some pennies that are really, really old. Um, My dad and I collect pennies. He said it's the only thing he can afford to collect, so we're going to keep collecting them together. What's cheaper than collecting penny other than rocks? But my dad's penny collection, we found some old pennies. Um, uh, Pennies that were printed in 1941, for instance. That penny is in good shape today. It looks like a penny. The face of Abraham Lincoln... 
the memorial, the date, it's pretty easy to see. And it's amazing that these coins from ancient Greece are pretty legible, pretty recognizable. But a 1941 penny is better preserved than a 1941 book. Anybody have a book from 1941 in their house? Zach does. No. Liar. <laughs> you got me going here. I was like, what book is it? You've got to show me this. I like history. If you have a book from 1941, like Zach may or may not have, it has to be very carefully protected. You do? Oh, he was telling the truth. I'm sorry, Zach. I just... <laughs> you had a look on your face that I discredited you instantly, so... so. But you do. have to take very good care of it, right? Because it's old, and, and paper gets brittle, and, and moisture can congeal pages, and, and ink can flow together. Old books are hard to preserve. Coins, metal, we have an easier time with that. But old books are hard to preserve. Now, why does this matter as we think about Scripture? Well, think about how old Scripture is. The original letters, like from Paul to the Ephesians, we call the book of Ephesians, but it was a letter to the church in Ephesus. How old would that be? You know, a couple millennia, thousands of years. We have no originals of any of those letters. We don't have Luke's original copy of the Gospel of Luke or, or Luke, who also authored Acts. We don't have the original book of Acts that is just sitting in a museum somewhere for us to go through. There is lots of authors and lots of copies over the centuries, which means even the process for figuring out how do we word our book of Ephesians because Ephesians, just as a case example, appears um, in several different group manuscripts. We call them codices or other things. Um, and I know this is some technicality that doesn't matter, but hopefully it deepens our appreciation that people had to compare and contrast different copies of the book of Ephesians for us to have what we just read as Ephesians. Codex Sinaiticus has it. Codex Alexandria doesn't. There's some independent copies of a church that maybe just said, we have a copy of the book of Ephesians, the one that Paul wrote to Ephesus. And then to figure out when those agree well, when does it look like someone changed something or a typo, heaven forbid. Lots of authors over lots of centuries and lots of different copies to compile to give us the gift that we have, that we can confidently read the letter to the church in Ephesus and read it as God's word. Because there is no golden tablet delivery in English. The Bible is written in Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek. And so even what we have had to be translated from one language into another. I wish there was an Indiana Jones movie about all of the originals. But I guess we'll have to settle for Raiders of the Lost Ark. This should not make us mistrust Scripture or question or wonder what's wrong with it. It does give us opportunity to study it well, to know that there's levels of, of, of criticism and making sure that we come up with the best, most accurate, original intent of what was written, 
even to a church 2,000 years ago by a guy named Saul who was later called Paul. There's no golden tablet delivery in our language. That's not where the Bible came from. There is a group of people who do believe that. The Mormons would say it came directly down. But we have paid attention to what has been passed down through tradition, what's been preserved as of greatest importance throughout centuries. What do we get from all this? From the fact that our Bible is complicated and great care and effort and energy and painstaking means had to be taken to give us what we have today. Let's appreciate the fact that the Bible is a beautiful gift. It is a gift that has been given by people that we don't know and we'll probably see them in heaven, but we hardly recognize who they are. It's been preserved and taken care of. It's been verified over different times. And the Bible, at its core, is the written word, capital W. The written word is testimony about Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. The word made flesh. As the Gospel of John puts it, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Bible is the written word, but it testifies about Jesus Christ, who is the incarnate word. In Genesis, God created. In Revelation, we know who to call God by name, for God being Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. Scripture is testimony about Christ. And so our study of Scripture and wholehearted study, analysis, our study of Scripture, our learning of it, our learning the stories, our occasional glimpse into the understanding of, of how these stories were delivered to us should always lead us towards a greater devotion towards Jesus because this is what the story is about. And even the criteria for determining our New Testament often hinged on, does this lead us to clear understanding of who Jesus is? There is lots of letters floating around when Paul and Peter were out sharing the gospel for the first time as people were hearing it from never before, hearing what happened in Jerusalem. There is lots of letters, but the ones that were taken in and given to us were ones that helped us understand who Jesus is. To know what the church was going through at that time, that it might be a guide for what the church will face in the future. Now this might lead us to all kinds of other questions, and I know there's hours and, and entire courses we could take on this. But in simple thought, just for today, to not forget to ask the types of questions like, who put this all together? And when? And by what criteria? There's groups of people. Places called like the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Carthage, the Council of Chalcedon, which was in 451 AD, over 1,500 years ago. And it was at the Council of Chalcedon. They were actually more interested in settling this dispute of, is Jesus divine or human? And they said, yes, both. In 451 AD, the Council of Chalcedon convened and said, the Chalcedonian definition is that Jesus is fully divine, fully God, and fully human. That the fullest version of what it means to be a person is found in Jesus Christ. That was in 451 A.D., friends. And also at the Council of Chalcedon, they said, 
by the way, we think what we've compiled for the Bible, for the New Testament, is pretty good. But it took Nicaea and Carthage to get to Chalcedon before we really settled in and said, this is it. This fits the criteria of what we're trying to preserve about Jesus Christ. You can imagine the process of putting the New Testament together would be if every single town in the state of Michigan, okay? Michigan plus, oh, other side, sorry. Charlie, oh yeah, turn my hand over, okay, thanks. I've only lived here like seven years, you know. We don't have any hand signs for Indiana other than, hi. (laughs) On your way to the green elevator. Imagine if every single town in the state of Michigan had to come up with a cohesive definition of what Michigan is all about. Every single town has to come up with, here's what Michigan's all about. Now, bonus round, you can't use email or telephone. You can write letters, but you can't deliver them through the post office. So let's say we at North Holland, we have an idea about what the state of Michigan is all about. We first decide... We've got this letter. There's a statement about Michigan that we've had for years. We're going to hold on to it. We need to make sure that everybody else knows that this part of statement about Michigan is really important. But every single village in Michigan is doing this. In the early church, different churches, different house churches, small gatherings had different copies of a letter. For instance, when the book of Revelation was written, people would take copies of it. It would be passed from them They'd write it down, they'd pass it along to the next village, and then those churches would hold on to those copies. And so eventually there had to be a lot of bringing all of this together, before email, before phone call, and letters were written, but there was no postal service. So we would basically elect a delegate like, Tom, you've got some time on your hands this week, why don't you walk to Grand Rapids and deliver our letter? We also hope that you don't get murdered by bandits along your way. This was a real concern. That's also why the fact that this all came together after Rome was established and there were safe roads for the first time in human history matters a lot. That God was at work in the timing of Scripture coming together. This is a reminder that what we have today is a gift. And you might hear the questions about the Apocrypha, and some of us are going, Apocrypha, what? And my simple response on the Apocrypha is this, Belgic Confession and crossword puzzles. That makes sense, doesn't it? The Apocrypha were other books, um, both of the Old Testament editions and also books between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they were debated and disputed. Do these count? Are these real? Belgic Confession is one of the Reformed Church in America confessions that we use as a way to clarify what we mean, what we're all about. And they actually mention the difference in Article 6 of the Belgic Confession, the difference between the canonical and apocryphal books. Belgic Confession Article 6 says this, We distinguish between these holy books, the ones already listed, and the apocryphal ones, which are 3rd and 4th book of Esdras, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Jesus, Sirach, Baruch, what was added to the story of Esther, The Song of the Three Children in the Furnace. That's interesting. The Story of Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, The Prayer of Manasseh, and the Books of Maccabees. So they've listed off what the apocryphal books are. And you might hear things like, The Three People in the Furnace? 
That sounds like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There is a song about them? I'm curious now. And this is what the Reformed tradition held to. The church may certainly read these books and learn from them as far as they agree with the canonical books, the first 66 that we already have. But they do not have such power and virtue that one could confirm from their testimony any point of faith or of the Christian religion, much less can they detract from the authority of the other holy books. Basically, the Belgic Confession says, sure, read them. Don't put them quite on the same level. And if there's contradiction, we're going with the 66 of the Old and New Testament as you and I know it today. But that we may learn from them. The book of Maccabees is between the Old and the New Testament. It's a lot of the story of what happened between the end of the Old Testament as we know it and when Jesus showed up on the scene. It's a history book. It doesn't confirm to us any testimony about Christ, but it does maybe inform us as to what people were expecting in a Savior because Maccabees is a rough read. Think like Book of Judges, but maybe a little worse. But why crossword puzzles? A few years ago, I was in my first year here among you, and someone here who I have a very high opinion of called me and said, Pastor Stephen, I know this doesn't seem, I I don't even want to ask you about it, but but I'm stumped on a crossword puzzle answer, and I'm wondering if you could help. (laughs) I'm not good at crossword puzzles. But the question was around the story of Daniel, and the answer was Susanna. Now, this individual figured out that Susanna was the answer to the crossword puzzle, but also said, I reread, this is devotion to Scripture, I reread the book of Daniel, there's no mention of Susanna, and there's not. It's an addition. It's part of the Apocrypha. And the story of Susanna and the elders is actually one of sexual assault and a court case. Almost something relevant to today. And Daniel, as one of the up-and-coming leaders of the nation of Israel, is the one who found out how to sort out the truth, holding in tension the fact that Innocent until proven guilty did not exist because Susanna was a woman being accused by two men, and her testimony held no weight in court. And yet Daniel also wanted to protect her because she was vulnerable, and also wanted to make sure that they found some measure of truth in all of this and had to sort these things out. The story of Susanna and the elders is a brilliant insight into who Daniel was and why he was a respected leader of the nation of Israel in a post-exilic time. Now, I know that's a lot of wording. It's not in the Old Testament as we have it. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily untrue, but it wasn't within the original sets. And so in the Reformation, they said, you know what, as interesting as this is, and the Belgic Confession says, as much as we might learn from it, it doesn't confirm for us testimony about Christ. So we're not going to mess with the Old Testament as we know it. A crossword puzzle answer led me back to seminary and undergraduate days of figuring out what the Apocrypha was, because I had no idea before that. So I actually did print off a copy for this individual who agrees, man, this is a good story. This is worth reading. However, we have this gift 
in its final form, and it is sufficient. One of the words that the Reformed tradition uses to describe the Bible is that it is sufficient in what it teaches for our salvation, for our knowledge of who Jesus is. We can appreciate Genesis 1-1, God the creator, by being in nature. But to get to Revelation 22-21, we need to understand who Jesus is. And scripture is true in its testimony and sufficient in what it tells us about who we are as people who need Jesus and who Jesus is, that he is the Savior for us. That in Christ we have the forgiveness of sins, promise the resurrection and eternal life. This is confirmed to us in Scripture. This is something that the church cared a lot about to make sure that it could be passed on. People who wrote these things down had no idea that there was even a continent called North America where you and I all live today. What a gift this is. What appreciation we can have for the people who took care to make sure we would have it. So how do we read Scripture well? Knowing all of this, I hope none of this rocks our world too much to know where it came from. It's all fair and good for us to know where did our Bible come from. We don't think it fell out of the tablets in the sky. The only thing that was written directly by God on a tablet, as the Belgic Confession spells out, was the Ten Commandments. The rest of it had to be someone cared enough to write this down, was moved by the Holy Spirit to say, I need to put this in ink. So we continue to read the Bible today, recognizing its authority. I hope we read with curiosity. Curiosity in the sense of when we come to a crossword puzzle answer that we don't know, that we don't say the crossword puzzle answer is wrong or why would they even use that? But what is this? Why is it there? Where did it come from? That we read scripture with reverence, that we pray for God's blessing upon the reading of the word, whether we be looking at it on our phone, listening to it in our vehicle, or reading it on a Sunday morning. We read with reverence. The center of this is the love for Christ. There's times where we can study the Bible and study Jesus, but hopefully our study of the Bible leads us to love Jesus. And although it might be okay for a season that we don't fall in a trap of loving the Bible and studying Jesus. Do you want to love your spouse or study your spouse? There's a time to study and pay attention to their habits as a person. But our love for Christ is the goal and directive and the type of living that Scripture calls us to when we read it piece by piece. I'm fostered with huge appreciation for the gift that the Bible is, that I even have this, that I have access to it, that I can trust that it's been looked over over the centuries to make sure that it reflects an accurate depiction of who Jesus is and the purpose for which the church exists. And I hope it brings within us devotion. Devotion to read the book, not for the sake of just reading the book, but that knowing the stories is to get in touch with the story of the way God has been at work. That we have devotion to knowing what is in here and to figuring out what does it mean for us that it tells us who we are and what does that mean for us. I just ask, curiosity is as simple as saying why. Reverence is remembering that God is holy and calls us to holy living, which is why we do confession and assurance and why we prep ourselves before communion. And that we have appreciation for literacy. The fact that we have Bibles and that we can read them is amazing. 
For 451 years, they didn't have total agreement on what this was. But then, even after the Council of Chalcedon kind of confirmed that the canon was set, it's going to be over a thousand years until we have the printing press. And even after we have the printing press and books can be made available, it's still a few hundred years of widespread illiteracy. The fact that we live in a day and age where we have books and they're cheap and that we can read them together is amazing. Don't take for granted literacy or the time that you live in. And the devotion, to close on this, I simply add, what's the standard for devotion? When I think devotion, I typically think cup of coffee in the morning and Bible reading. And this is good. Nothing that I'm talking about is bad. That's my picture. Getting up a little bit earlier to create some time in your day before you go into all the other busyness just to spend some time appreciating God's word. That's what I think of with devotion. We have different pictures of this. But I ask, what was the standard for devotion before people were literate, before they had Bibles, before we even agreed what was all in the Bible. If you were a Christian in, say, 300 AD, what do you believe? How do you summarize that? And that question is fair for us today. Because if I were to ask you, what do you believe? Well, you believe the Bible. Um, you have 72 hours to read it out loud. That's what we believe. How do we summarize that? There's something that was agreed upon even before the canon was closed. And it was something short and easy that people who were illiterate could memorize. To know and summarize, this is what I believe. This is the core of my convictions. Anybody know what that is? Pick up a hymn book in front of you and open to the front cover. Anybody know what it is? The Apostles' Creed. <laughs> Scripture was being circulated, but was not finished yet. But at ecumenical councils, they also came up with summary statements of what it is that we believe. Creed coming from Latin credo, I believe, which is why these are I believe statements. Meant to summarize all of the good teaching that Scripture expounds upon and gives to us and is preserved for us. But the core of it, the root of it that was passed along before we had books, before we were literate, for the last, well, really the first 1,700 years of the church's existence, the Apostles' Creed was the core of what we held on to. And everything else added, and it served as a guide to know what was the distilled core convictions that we matter most in believing. So as we close today, I invite you, as we consider Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22:21 to join me in reading the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.